Happy New Year, one week removed. Um, I think a while back I was sharing from Romans 8, verse 28, and I think the Lord is needing to go to the next verse, Romans 8, 29. But it's, I was looking back on the uh, podcast, and it seems that it's been a few, it's been almost maybe a month or so, a month plus or whatever since talked about verse 28, so it would probably be good to do a little bit of review. Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. So I think we just covered verse 28 last time. Nobody remember. I think we just covered verse 28 last time. Okay. I mean, if nobody remembers, then that's fine too. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> So, uh, the verse is a, is a famous one, and, but we need to be careful what it's actually talking about. It's not saying that, the, that God will work all things out good in the end for Christians. Like, you go through this situation and things just seem terrible, but then finally at the end everything turns out okay. That's not what the verse is saying. The verse is saying that God is going to use all things, whether evil or whether good, and he's going to produce good in the life of the believer. And verse 29 shows us what particular good that God has in mind. It's being conformed to the image of Christ. So all things, he will use all events in our lives, everything that happens to us, to produce in us that good thing of the the uh, characteristics of Christ in us. So the things that the Lord Jesus demonstrated, his kindness, his goodness, his patience, his long-suffering, and all those fruits of the Spirit, these are the things that God will use all things in our lives to produce. And uh, I don't remember if we talked about uh, Abraham much, but if you go through Abraham's life, you'll see that at the end, God intended to uh, produce a man of faith. And we saw that when he went to offer up his son on the altar, and, and perhaps even more so when he went to find a bride for Isaac, because if you think about it, <clears throat> there's right ways and wrong ways to go find a bride for your your uh, son. And what Abraham did is not the advisable way, because he sent some servant out to go find some random chicken in a long, off, distant land to try to bring back the right girl. Uh, but he had the reason Abraham did that. Abraham did that was because he trusted in God. And if you <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I've married off one kid now, so I know the stress and the agony of trying to decide if it's the right person or not. To send off your servant to go find the right girl when everything is at stake. This is the promised son. This is the one that everything... I mean, this girl must not turn Isaac away from the living God. Must not. And you're going to commit that to your servant. And he did because he trusted in God. And you can, if you read the interchange, the exchange between the two... Uh, he said, God will lead you, God will direct you, and so forth. Completely trust. I mean, the man had faith. Hmm. 
But if you watch his life, you'll, especially in the beginning, you'll see that Abraham made several mistakes where he could have trusted God in the famine to provide the food, and he didn't. And he could have trusted God to keep him safe with his wife, and he didn't. He told lies about her. And God used those choices of Abraham and those evil events and them evil situations to show to Abraham that he could trust him because he intervened and Abraham was restored with his wife and a whole bunch of wealth besides. Like, it didn't matter if the situation was good or turned out bad or whatever, God used it to produce the good of faith in Abraham. Just a small example of how God works, I think, in the lives of believers. But then we talked about in verse 28 how he specifies that there are some believers where he's able to accomplish a greater degree of Christ-likeness than in others. And we know this is true because we can look at older believers and some older believers we look at and we're like, boy, <laughs> they've got a long ways to go. And then you look at other older believers and you can see the, the likeness of Christ just radiating from them. And I think he says in verse 28 that those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose are the ones to whom he's able to work these out. And we, I, I think we talked about the, who it is that loves God and... Uh, According to John, the ones who love God are the ones whom God loves first. We love God because he first loved us. And so the key to loving God is understanding his love for me. To see that he loved me first. And to properly understand the love of God, the only way I can see how to understand the love of God is to put it in in the proper context. The context of the corruption of the sin in my life. If I, if I can recognize the reality of the extent of the sin inside of my life, and, I mean, you can read through, like, Leviticus uh, after the offerings where he starts talking about unclean foods and then unclean peoples and so forth and, and begin to realize the extent of the uncleanness that was in the Israelites, and yet God drew them near himself. And that's just a snapshot, then, of what uh, of what the extent of the uncleanness and the wretchedness of our sin inside of us, and you put God's love in that context, you really begin to see how much God loves you. And people who do that, uh, they love God. How can you not? If God has loved me in the depth of my sin, what a good God. What, what a great God. And so I think it's important then for us to grab hold of that reality that God loves us in our sin. I think that oftentimes we are looking for God's love and for his approval by doing what is right and good. If we can just eradicate this particular sin in life and walk uh, the Christian life the way we ought to, then God will be pleased with us. That's the thing that comes to and. And what we get is we get people around us who are always teaching us, well, if you do this, you can eradicate that sin, or if you do these things. There's all kinds of teachings of what you can do to bring pleasure to God. You know, there's really popular now to talk about glorifying God, like our goal is to glorify, the purpose for which we're created is to glorify God. So if we can glorify God in a pure and rightful, rightful way, then we will have the love of God on us. We will be, God's, God will be pleased with us. And I think these things are all winds of doctrine that blow us one way or another. And what we need to do is grab on to that real truth that God loved us while we were sinners. 
While we were yet in our sins, Christ... Because Paul tells us that as you were saved, so walk in Christ. And how was it that we were saved? Well, we saw that we were full of guilt of sin. And so we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior who was sent to us because of God's love towards us. That's how we got saved. And Paul says, walk in that. That's what your Christian life should be focused on towards that love of God. And, but I think it's, it's, I think there are a lot of winds of doctrine that try to blow us off of that. And I think the irony is, is that the harder that we strive to please God and produce perfection in us, the farther we get from it. The more we recognize the reality of our sin, acknowledge it, and the reality of God's truth, God's love towards us while we are sinners, the more he is able to work out perfection, which is irony. It seems like the more we, you know, if I am daily acknowledging or recognizing the reality of my sin, it doesn't seem like I would ever become more like the Lord Jesus Christ, but that is how he works. Because... You see God's love towards you. And then it's those, it's also to those who are called according to his purpose. The calling is a vocation type calling. It's not an invitation type call. He's calling it to a particular life. To the Israelites, they were called to holiness. And if you go to Romans chapter 1, you see that they were called to be saints. In 1 Corinthians, called to be saints. God's calling is to be holy, which means, in the case of Israel, it meant that they would be living near him. When they came to the mountain, they weren't holy. They weren't even allowed to touch the mountain that God was on. When they left the mountain, they put their tents all around God's tent, God's tabernacle. Being holy to them meant they lived near God. It didn't mean that they had perfected their lives to where they were sinless. It meant they lived near God and they didn't have to worry about his condemnation. The same is true for us, that we are made holy, we are made saints. The Holy Spirit indwells us. Like, how much nearer to God can we get? And yet it seems like we're always striving to be near God. We're always working hard. If we can just get rid of the sin in our lives, then we'll be near God. False! When you are saved, you are as near to God as you can possibly be. He dwells inside you. And the wonder of that truth, even for the Israelites, to know that they could be near God and not worry about condemnation, for those that valued that, it would transform their lives. Who wants to live in sin if you're living near God? We think, we tend to think that You need to put away sin in your life so that you can be near God. The reality is, we're near God. And the wonder of that, we need to learn to put away sin. You don't put away sin to be near God. You put away sin because you are near God. It's not a matter of trying to be holy, because we are holy. It's a matter of enjoying the holiness, the nearness of God. To be able to enjoy that, you can't live in sin. So the holy lifestyle of putting away sin in our lives, that comes as a result of being near God. There are two aspects of being holy. One is putting away these actions, but if we think that we got to be pure in our actions before we can be near God, we're going to be frustrated all of our lives. To recognize the reality that he is near us 
as close as we can be, closer than the Israelites ever enjoyed, provides a foundation then on which we can begin to live the way we ought to live. So, the call according to his purpose uh, is significant, uh, that according to his purpose emphasizes the reality that we are made holy not by our works, but according to his purpose. And you can go into, I forget where it is, I think it's like Second Timothy, where Paul just spells it straight out. Um, Timothy or second to me, I can never remember. I think he says something that where we are called by a holy calling, not of our works, but according to his purpose. And so, uh, yeah, second Timothy one talks about God, yeah, verse 9, God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us given to us in Christ Jesus before time again. There he sets God's purpose in contrast to our works. We think by our works we achieve the holy calling, but the holiness is achieved by God's purpose. Now the Israelites give us a good illustration of that because when they were at the mountain, what they did was they brought the materials for the tabernacle, and uh, all the furniture and everything else like that. And you get to the end of Exodus, and you can read a passage that's extremely repetitive. It talks about how Moses uh, put all these things together. <clears throat> it's so repetitive, it's almost worth uh, pointing out so that you can understand the point that he's driving at. chapter of Exodus, when everything comes all put together, after all the components have been made, it says that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, on the first day of the first month, you shall set up the tabernacle, a tent of meeting. You shall put it in the ark. Notice the repetitiveness. You shall, you shall. You shall put it in the ark of the testimony and partition off the ark of the, with the veil. You shall bring in the table and arrange the things that will be set in order on it. Verse 5. You shall set the altar of gold for incense in verse 6 you shall every verse you shall and you shall set the court around you shall take the anointing oil you shall anoint the altar you shall anoint the labor all the way through up to verse 15 you shall anoint them as you anointed and then verse 16 thus Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him so he did and then he does it again Verse 17 came to pass in the first month of the first year, the first day of the month that the tabernacle was set up. So Moses set up the tabernacle and fastened its sockets and put the boards. And he spread out the tent. Or the he took the testimony. He brought the ark. He put the table. All these things that Moses did. In verse 33, And he raised up the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the screen and work around the court gates. So Moses finished the work. Like the point is being driven really heavy here that this whole tabernacle was set up by the operation of Moses according to the command of the Lord. 
And the tabernacle was key for the Israelites to live around God, right? They needed that tabernacle. No tabernacle, no live near God. Tabernacle, you can live near God. That tabernacle was not set up according to the good works of the Israelites. It was set up by Moses' obedience to the words of God. By Moses doing that. So Moses completed the purpose of God through his obedience in setting up the tabernacle. It wasn't according to the works of Israel. It was according to Moses' obedience to the purpose of God that established the tabernacle and made them holy. And so it is for us that our holiness is not based on our works, but it's according to the Lord Jesus Christ carrying out the purpose of God through his obedience by going to the cross. Not by our works, but according to his purpose, which was fulfilled through Christ's obedience. People who rest in the reality of God's love and in the work of Christ, they are the ones for whom God is able to work all things out for good to a great extent. That's why all the epistles that Paul writes begin with the work of Christ and draw out the beauties of what he has done, with the exception perhaps of Galatians. Or maybe first, but a lot of those epistles that Paul writes start with the riches of what God has done for us and finish with the works that we're supposed to do as a result of what God has done. Because it's the foundation is the reality of what Christ has done. So, then verse 29, Whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Foreknow is a compound word in the Greek. It means beforehand, and it also means to know intimately. And I think this has been pretty well established. I don't think that's new. I think that's. I think everybody says that. There, the the significance of that word is that there are in the Greek there are different ways of knowing. You might know somebody because of you've studied out their lives, you read all their biographies or whatever else. You know all about them. That's not what this knowledge is talking about. This knowledge is talking about an intimate knowledge where because you have spent time with that person over a period of time, you begin to know how they respond to certain situations and so forth. You know that, you know, if you stomp on Caleb's toe, he's going to squeeze out a a bunch of exclamations and then a smack across the face because that's just how he responds. You know, because you've done it before. You know, you, you got this intimate knowledge of him. So, the word foreknow means have an intimate knowledge beforehand is kind of an odd one. Paul used the word once when he was on trial, and he he tells, I think it was King Agrippa, or maybe it was Felix, I forget which one, but he tells him, look, if the Jews were here, they knew me beforehand, and they could confirm the words that I'm saying, that I was in with their group and then converted is basically what he's saying. You know, they knew me beforehand. So he used it in that sense. So we need to be careful because the word does not always carry the connotation of from the beginning of time foreknowledge. It doesn't always carry that. Paul didn't use it that way. And so I think unless the passage indicates that it's a knowledge that came from before the beginning of time, maybe we shouldn't be very quick to add that beginning of time part of it to it. And we don't put the beginning of time part on it then you can start to see where foreknowledge actually took place in the New Testament. For example, 
John chapter 2, I think, is a, a an actual living demonstration of the Lord Jesus demonstrating his foreknowledge. <clears throat> John chapter 2 uh, is the clearest, I think, in verse in the story that starts at verse 43. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. And Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said, We have found him of whom Moses and the law, also the prophets, wrote Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. So clearly, Nathanael does not know Jesus, never met him, hasn't even crossed paths with him, didn't hear John the Baptist say, This is the Lamb of God, none of that. But verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Remember that foreknow is a compound word. Well, the second part, that know, that's what Nathanael is using right here. How do you know me? How do you have this intimate knowledge that that's the kind of person that I am? Well, because he foreknew him. He knew him intimately before he ever met him. Is what it, That's what we see demonstrated here. And you can see the same thing then in, in John, or, yeah, John chapter 4. we got the Samaritan woman. And she comes and she talks to Jesus. And Jesus knew her before she knew him. And he said, go call your husband. Come here. She said, I have no husband. He said, well, you've spoken well because you've had five husbands. And the man that you're living with now, he's not your husband. Well, how do you know me? She said, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. And then she went and told the people in town, come see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? He foreknew me. He knew me beforehand. So if you think about it from that perspective then, of Jesus knowing somebody intimately before ever having met them, We, of course, recognize that verse 29 here that says that whom he foreknew isn't saying that some people Jesus knew intimately and so those ones he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And other people he didn't know intimately, like he didn't know what was going on in their heart and so they weren't predestined. We know that isn't what it's saying here because we can read passages again in John Chapter 5, for example, where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, people who didn't believe in him, and as far as we know, they never did believe in him. And he said to them, uh, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. These are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. And then we've got those other, or no, that's a different example. So we've got we've got examples where the Lord Jesus knows people who do not believe in Him, and as far as we know, they never did believe in Him. So chapter two says He knew all men what was in them. So the word is. So the point I'm driving at is that this verse is not saying some people He had that intimate knowledge with, and some He didn't. He has the intimate knowledge with all people, right? We see that in Scripture. So when he says for no here, he's talking about knowing something about that person that then causes him to move to predestinating him. Predestinating him. 
And immediately we raise up red flags because we say there's nothing in us that would ever cause us to that would that would ever cause God to desire to save us. Like there's no good in us. And that's true. There is no good in us. There's nothing where God looks and says, Oh, there is something of beauty there. That person's worth saving. No, we're corrupt inside and out. But in Psalm 50, so what, what then could the Lord possibly intimately know about us that would catch his attention, that would stand out from other people? <clears throat> and you could look at Psalm 51, you could look at probably a number of different passages that would indicate this. Listen to this, Psalm 51. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Isaiah 66 for all those things my hand has made all those things exist says the Lord but on this one I will look on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word what I'm suggesting here is that there are people in this world who could care less what God says they hear the commands of God and it doesn't bother them they continue in their sin they're not affected they don't They deliberately do not care about God. They want their sin. There are other people who, though they are in their sin, (laughs) I mean, God says it's wrong, and they know it's wrong. And so there's that guilt in there. They tremble at God's word. Sometimes they try very hard to not sin. Stop. To say that my brokenness over sin or my guilt over my sin is something that God would say that is worth saving. I mean, the whole point is the fact that I see my sin and it's so horrible, like horror of it reaches my soul it's, there's nothing in that to desire but he does but God does not despise that moving on <clears throat> he also predestined those people whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son now predestined also has is a compound word it has, forno has the two parts, it has that beforehand, predestined has the two parts, it also has that beforehand component. So they both are a beforehand, beforehand type of word. The second part of de- uh, de- predestined is a word that was used uh, in the Greek Old Testament to, t- to talk about defining boundaries. So like when the Israelites were out trying to set up, the, they were divvying out the land and they would define each tribe its boundaries or so forth. Or if you had somebody who was going to swear a vow, 
They would set bounds on themselves effectively. Like, this is what I'm going, this is what I can do, and this is what I cannot do. Here's my bounds. So it's kind of like you're setting up a sphere, a little region where you're going to abide, where you're going to live in, is kind of the concept there. And it's the idea is used like when the Lord Jesus came to earth, he was... He went to the cross as it had been determined beforehand by God, or determined by God to do. Like that was his lot. That's where he was going to go, was to the cross. That's that word. Uh, that's the second part of this predestined area. Here is your lot. And here he tells us that the lot is to be conformed to the image of the Son. This is the sphere that you're going to live in, is the likeness of the Son. But the fact that he says predestined is is an odd one because you know when you set up when you set up the bounds for somebody here is you're going to be your lot of land this is where you're going to live forever and ever is in this little lot it's like you're already talking about something in the future you're not talking about this was your bounds you're saying this is going to be your bounds so if you're talking about this is your area where you are going to live how do you beforehand determine where you're beforehand are going to live you know it's like a double future forward looking I don't know if there is a double future tense but that's kind of what this word is sort of like I think the life of Abraham uh, gives us a, a clear illustration of what these words are trying to convey I referenced let's, let's go to Genesis 22 it's worth reading this verse I referenced the end of Abraham's life, how he was, uh, the last major story that's told us how he sent his servant out in complete confidence that God would lead him where he needed to go. But the story that precedes that is the one where Abraham's faith was tested and proven to be true, where he took his son up on top of the mountain and was going to offer him up as a sacrifice in obedience to God's command. Now, the angel came and prevented Abraham from carrying this out and showed him the ram and so forth. And after it was all done, after the, after the ram had been offered up instead of his son, it says in verse 15 that the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, Blessing, I will bless you. Multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you because you have obeyed my voice. I want to focus on verse 18. You'll see why in a minute. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Why? Because you have obeyed my voice. Because Abraham heard God's command to take his son on top of the mountain, because he did not hesitate, because he took his son and put him on the altar, because he reached out his hand to grab the knife, because he did all of that, then this would be his lot that in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. That's, I mean, that's what the verse is saying. Because of this obedience that we see here, Abraham's seed would be the Messiah in whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. 
This is where I think it's established. This is where God says, this is the way it's going to be. This is now your your lot, so to speak, your sphere. I, I mean, I don't know how else to say, because in verse 16, he says, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and not withheld your son, your only son. So this is where it's established. Now I'll go back to chapter 12, where Abram was first, uh, as far as we know, the first time that he that God approached Abram. The first couple of verses in chapter 12, this almost comes out of the blue. We were, if you read the previous chapter, you're reading about Terah, who was the father of Abram and his brothers, and how they traveled and so forth. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, this passage comes, verse 1, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The last phrase, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, is the same, he's he's referring to the same thing that he he referred to in chapter 22, right? In your seed shall all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But if in chapter 22 is where God established the reality that this would be Abram's lot, then this is the beforehand. This is the predestination. Because it wasn't established yet at this point. This was the calling. I think that is about, I mean, I think that's the meaning of predestination. That there is even before Abraham, Abram responded to God's call, God already had the intent that in him all the seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That was not established until Abraham actually obeyed God there on top of the mountain. <clears throat> well, the question is why Abram, and why at this time, you know, why what was going on here? And we know from Joshua, uh, towards the late, latter end of Joshua, that that Abram grew up in an idolatrous area. And we know that his fathers were idolaters. Uh, Whether or not Terah was or not, I don't know. It's amazing that they were idolaters because Noah was still alive uh, right around, I think he was was still alive at the time Abram was born. So it's not like we're talking hundreds of millions of years after the flood. Like, how can you not believe in God when you've got Noah sitting right there? But that's what they were doing, was that they were going into idolatry, and even Abram's parent, his fathers, uh, suffered from that delusion. And it wasn't like God, in in Abram's time period, it wasn't like he went around the land of uh, Ur that he come out of, and asked a bunch of people in the region, hey, Will you come out to the land of Canaan? No? Okay, well, how about you? You know, I'll bless you. If you come out to the land of Canaan, I'll bless you. No? Well, how about you? You know, wasn't we don't read this idea that God went around checking a whole bunch of different people. And finally, Abram said yes. It's ridiculous. We know that God approached Abram specifically. Why did God approach Abram? Well, you look at the promise that God gives you. 
that the calling that he asked him to do, get out of the country from your family to, and from your father's house. Leave your family. <clears throat> That's a big step. Just to up and leave all your relatives. And to leave the center of civilization where Ur was at. And to go out into who knows what. The middle of nowhere. What motivation is God going to offer Abram to do this? I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. Make your name great. You shall be a blessing. The motivation that God gave Abram to leave his family was blessing. I will bless you. Who is going to respond to an ambiguous uh, motivation like that? Like, who is going to say, okay, you know, you you give me some kind of blessing, you'll make me a great nation. Okay, so much for a great nation, that's great, but I won't be here to be that. You know, that nation will be great long after I'm long gone and everything like that. So, uh, I mean, what kind of blessing can you offer me that these other gods aren't already offering me? How do you... How do you, I mean, I live in a center of civilization. You know, I go, these gods, they, they provide us with fertility. They provide us with all the kinds of food and everything else, like all riches and all restless comforts and stuff. And you're offering me this kind of blessing, like, you've you got to give me a little bit more than that, right? The only person who's going to be motivated, who's going to find that promise something worth chasing after is somebody who really believes that God is God that he can actually bless at a level that no other God can bless. Somebody who trembles at God's word. God knew that Abram was different than the people around him. That Abram, I don't know what, maybe he was in idolatry, maybe he wasn't, I don't know, it doesn't really matter, but Abram, when God, if God was going to offer him a promise and say, I'm going to bless you, Abram would say, well, that's pretty amazing. I'll go where you call me to go. There is an element of foreknowledge here and based on God's knowledge that if he offers to Abram blessing, Abram will jump at the chance. And so God says, this man going to jump at the chance, I'm going to make him into a blessing for all the nations. Because God knew Abram intimately before Abram ever knew God. Like I said, I don't know how else you would work the story of Abram. I think that provides us then with this idea of what he's doing. So then Abram is called, as we read in verse 30, whom he predestined, he also called. And them who he called, he justified. And so when you get to chapter 15 and you see that justification. And them whom he justified, he glorified. And Abram is definitely glorified throughout the history of mankind. And it was true for Abram. What does that mean for us? Abram didn't have eternal life given. He wasn't born again because the Lord Jesus Christ hadn't come yet. He was justified. But for us who have the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has died for us and who gives to us eternal life, who, through whom we are born again, if God could carry out his purpose in Abram through his foreknowledge and his and his determination to work all things for good, how much more is he going to work in us? That's, that's why Paul slides into this. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with them also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Like If God could accomplish great things for Abram, how much more is he going to be able to produce in us the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ if we rest in him? Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, the love of God towards sinners. Sinners whom he has saved through the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we come before you and ask that you would work in our hearts to impress on us the reality of these truths that that you have accomplished our salvation and that you will bring us home safe and that you will work in our lives to produce according to your purpose the, the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And just ask that you would help us to Walk in Christ, even as we are saved in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.